today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. There is a ton of stuff to talk about uh, regarding space. Let's bring in Professor Paul Delaney, uh, York University, and he is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing very well indeed, Scott, and I'm glad you are too. Uh, there's a lot of space news today. Uh, let's start with the anniversary, and not a very good one. 35 years ago today, uh, the Challenger uh, space shuttle, of course, uh, blew up on launch. Now, oddly enough, I'm just watching this uh, documentary on Netflix right now, which is absolutely fascinating, uh, talking about how this all happened and, and uh, you know, certainly the path that the space shuttle program took. Uh, what are your thoughts as we look back at this 35 years later? Uh, it certainly is a very, very sad anniversary and uh, hot on the heels yesterday of the Apollo 1 loss back in 67. The end of January is yeah. always a sad moment in history for NASA. But uh, as far as the space shuttle is concerned, I mean, it was the first flight for the teacher in space program. So there was even added interest. There was you know, literally schools all across uh, both Canada and the U.S. who were glued to the screen watching Krista McCullough fly. And, of course, to watch 73 seconds in, the uh, space shuttle explode as it did was really, really wrenching. NASA learned a lot from it. You always learn more from failure than you do from success, as sad as that may seem. Uh, and you can certainly argue that the space shuttle program was all the better for the, the tragedy that took place in 86. But it was a tragedy that really didn't have to happen. Uh, you know, there was ample indicators that said they shouldn't have flown that morning and it was, you know, a lot of pressure on NASA to increase their flight uh, cadence, and they did the wrong thing on January 28th. It really is as simple as that. They shouldn't have flown. They were told that they shouldn't fly. They flew, and they paid the price, and seven astronauts died as a result. We certainly know those times, and 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 again, when the space. I remember watching in college the space shuttle uh, landing for the very first time, and, and that was incredible. Uh, and, and this certainly did rejuvenate uh, the space program. And as you mentioned, with with uh, with with having the teacher on board and such, uh, Krista McAuliffe. Um, but but then it seemed that there was a shuttle launch almost all the time. I remember my parents had a uh, had a place in Florida at the time, and they were always telling me about uh, space shuttle going off and and we seem to lose a bit of interest in it it was just happening uh so much so how do you balance the technology and the discovery and the exploration along with the hype that is needed to propel these programs forward financially and 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 balance the show that is all of this i mean obviously they've learned some great lessons from the challenger this, everything you just said talks to balance, and that was what NASA was, was desperately trying to achieve. Uh, after the moon landing, there was a lot of um, there was a loss of interest in the space program. Uh, that's why we didn't complete the Apollo program, and why it took nearly another nine years after Apollo 17 before the first shuttle launched in 1981. There was a general malaise, if you will. And then once the shuttle started flying as many as eight and nine times a year, people looked at it and said, well, you know, science fiction has arrived. We, you know, this is going to be the norm. We don't have to think about it. It's, it's, it's so routine. But there's nothing about spaceflight which is routine. And as we say, NASA learned that the hard way. To be able to launch successfully and continually with new and exciting programs uh, and balance that against the loss of, of both people as well as, as satellites, it's a hard thing. I, I don't envy NASA in that regard. Uh, but what has happened in the ensuing sort of 35 years 
is that partnerships are formed, which have been very good for the space program, the partnerships with groups like SpaceX, with Blue Origin, uh, and you know, soon uh, you know, Axiom Space. NASA has realized that they can generate a great deal of excitement but step back from the precipice and make sure that they are doing things right and safely and share that responsibility with the private sector. So things have changed a lot in the last 35 years since Challenger, that's for sure. This is still extremely dangerous, is it not? I mean, we're about to talk about a story of uh, Canadians who are going to pay $55 million each to fly on the space station. Two are grandfathers, other has three young children, uh, all obviously very wealthy and, and paying $55 million bucks to, to get an eight-day stay at uh, at the International Space Station. I remember, and again, watching the Challenger uh, documentary, you know, some of the astronauts were a little miffed by uh, the fact that they were bringing a private citizen on board because they knew this was still a dangerous venture. Uh, Has it changed that much? In terms of the danger associated with spaceflight, never forget that you're sitting on top of a big bomb. I mean, you know, it's it's a controlled explosion. You're sitting on top of this huge firecracker, and everything has to go right. As as SpaceX often says, there's a thousand ways for a launch to go wrong and only one way for it to go right. Uh, That has not changed, and it's not going to change. The energies that are involved and being able to contain them and direct them accordingly is tough, and it always will be, and we should never take it for granted. But if you do look back over the last you know, several years, the successful rate of launch has improved considerably because in many ways, you know, we're doing the same thing over and over again. If you look at the success of the Russian program over the last 50 years, the Soyuz vehicle has remained essentially unchanged throughout that 50 years. They've added a Mm. few more computers, but the same basic stack has flown time and time and time again and is just about the most successful vehicle on the planet. If you think back to NASA over the same period of time, they've gone from uh, the Apollo mission, they've gone uh, to the Saturn V through the shuttle uh, configuration. They briefly flirted with a thing called Ares. They're now trying to work the space launch system. They've changed continually, arguably to improve the situation, but it's taken away a lot of the stability and the learning that is involved with successful launches. Falcon 9 and SpaceX has not changed in any significant way for the last six or seven years. And they're now launching successfully about 20 to 25 times per year. No substitute for experience in this regard. And and that's one thing that NASA, I suspect, has not learned even yet, because we're still trying to develop new systems to go to the moon. Perhaps we should have dug up the plans for the Saturn V and used the experience from the past. Hmm. I remember interviewing uh, uh, Chris Hadfield a couple of times, and uh, and he he told a story of, and I believe it was him, told a story of uh, announcing to his wife that he was uh, uh, going to become an astronaut, moving from uh, the occupation of test pilot. And she was very much relieved because being an astronaut was way safer than being a test pilot, apparently. <laughs> That's an interesting story. I hadn't heard that. But yes, when you look back at the history of, of test flyers, uh, go back to the the, uh, the X series, the X-15, Chuck Yeager and so on, we lost yeah. an awful lot of people in those early days uh, in test flight. So yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that uh, Chris's wife had that sort of reaction. Uh, and as I said, in many ways, NASA has, has learned some lessons with respect to the losses of the Apollo 1 uh, mission uh, with the Challenger, and even Columbia. 
you know, the systems they fly today are certainly very, very safe in comparison with the past. But it is still an awful lot of energy. There is still a lot of danger, and we should never take spaceflight for granted. And it doesn't matter whether or not we're talking about NASA, whether or not we're talking about the European Space Agency, or the upcoming uh, you know, civilian flight, there will still be an element of risk. But the risk, I would argue, has declined, but it's certainly not zero. So what are your thoughts on these people uh, paying $55 million each to go up and uh, have an eight-day stay on the International Space Station? Is that the future? Is that what we need to do in order to propel this program forward? I, I, I think it is going to be the future, not at $55 million a pop. That number is going to – you're going to see that one come down a long, long way very, very quickly, I would suggest. Now that uh, SpaceX has been the first group to be given – uh, you know, the green light for taking tourists to orbit. Blue Origin is not going to be very far behind. You're going to see Richard uh, Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic fly this year, tourists to low Earth orbit. Space tourism has been on the horizon for the last 20 years, and this is going to be the year, this and next, where you know, something of the floodgates are going to open. Uh, I personally am very excited over that opportunity. The more people that fly, the quicker the price is going to come down. Uh, so that, you know, potentially in five to 10 years, people like you and I are going to be in a position where we, you know, with, with a few years preparation, be able to afford those types of tickets. But at the moment, it's a very exclusive club and they've, they've got to show that they can go up and back basically with no expertise at the helm. That, that's what the Dragon capsule is designed to do, to fly more or less autonomously although next year's mission does have a very experienced astronaut on board. But the aim of the exercise is for you and me to get in there and let this be you know, the train taking us to and fro Earth orbit. I'm excited over the possibility, and I, I personally can't wait to see the AX-1 flight next year. So if York University said, uh, Paul, here's 55 mil, you go stand in line, would you go? Oh, I would. I would have done that yeah. 50 years ago with Apollo as well. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> So um, that being said, what you know, it's obviously different from people who are paying fifty-five million to to board this and ride it. That's a different that's a different person. But you know, what type of person? What are astronauts like? What type of person does it take to do this? Uh, again, I, I've I've interviewed I've interviewed a few over the years, and they're all incredibly well spoken, incredibly educated, uh, just present themselves perfectly. But you often wonder what are they really like? I mean, like you said, who straps themselves to a rocket inside of a little wee space and pulls the trigger and hopes for the best? Obviously, there's more to it than that. Um, but is there any sort of common denominator in the character or the personality of these people that that do this? They are, to me, the people who are looking beyond the horizon. Uh, you know, most of us sort of you know, carry on our day-to-day activities and you know, we put our lives in order and we enjoy ourselves. But the, the astronaut crew, to me, are looking beyond where you and I want to go. They, they want to see what's on the other side of the horizon. You know, I, I think that type of adventurous spirit is hardwired into it. I think it's genetic. And the astronauts are those folks who are, if you will, prepared to not just step forward and see what's beyond the horizon, but you know, ultimately, if it means that you know, they pay the ultimate price, they seem to have come to grips with that and they're prepared to you know, step in that direction on our collective behalf. Uh, you know, they, they really are a cut above the rest in that sense. Uh, the right stuff 
captured the spirit, forget about whether or not you like the movie or the book, mm-hmm. the, the spirit that they're referring to there, I think, captures what it is to be an astronaut, to be able to go beyond what is today and drag the rest of us along for the ride into, generally speaking, a better environment. So, you know, they, they are not thrill seekers, but they are certainly prepared to take the thrill and the challenge in hand and, you know, go across the horizon into the unknown, a step into the unknown. I've seen, I've heard some uh, same similarities, whether it's a fighter pilot or, or, or even a, a, a Formula One racing car driver, that they do not think of the danger. They feel they are in complete control. There is not the risk there in their mind because they are so well prepared. Would that be accurate? I, th- I think that is accurate. Uh, and generally speaking, it, it's also true. Uh, you know, they have been well-trained, regardless of any of the uh, engagements that you just spoke about, Formula One driving or, or flying into Earth orbit. They are very well-prepared, and they feel that they can minimize the risk and maximize the return. Sometimes, as, as we've just said, with Challenger and Columbia, you know, it, it, it's just not there. All of the cards aren't aligned, and you know, they, they can't control it. But in very large measure, they have that measure of confidence that is well-placed in the systems around them, and, and they're prepared to you know, roll the dice and uh, you know, go forward. We, as you've talked about, there's been stalls in the SPRACE program, you, you know, usually after people become bored with it or what have you, they've done what they said they were going to do. Do you anticipate that happening again, or are we on a trajectory right now where this is just going to keep going until we hit Mars? I, I, and I hope it doesn't stop there. I mean, you know, once we drive the cost of leaving Earth, getting into Earth orbit down to a really reasonable level, I see no reason why the, the space frontier doesn't become an everyday engagement. Yeah. I mean, you, you and I live today in the most technologically advanced era of, of human history. We can't live without our electronics, whether you like it or not. And I would suggest to you that most of us can't live without Earth orbit between satellite communications, GPS, weather satellites, and, you know, soon, if, if SpaceX and the Constellation satellites have their way, all of our internet will be run through Earth orbit. We live in Earth orbit. So it's become an extension of our daily lives. Uh, if we can keep the price to go from Earth to Earth orbit down, then you're, you are going to see the space tourist activities just like you go down to you know, the Bahamas or where have you. <laughs> I, I do fully expect to see installations on the moon in yours and I's lifetime for both science as well as recreation. Going on to Mars, I think, is the next obvious place. I think we are going to see space mining of asteroids over the coming 50 years. And, you know, the, the spirit of exploration is going to push us further out into the solar system and I hope to the stars. That's certainly further away. But there are groups out there, the Century Starship Project, that are talking about sending humanity out to the stars. It's all a matter of economics, getting off the surface of the Earth reliably and relatively inexpensively. And we are almost there. All right, let's talk about a wolf moon. It seems there's more and more types of moons here uh, every year. Uh, I was uh, out uh, the other night shoveling the driveway uh, in the evening, and I noticed, my goodness, it is incredibly bright. Uh, I was out the backyard with the dog playing in the snow, and everything was lit up, and there was no lights on. It was all coming from the sky. So talk a little bit about the wolf moon and why it is so bright right now. 
Right. So some of what you were just seeing is what I call light pollution. <laughs> it's yeah, so much natural light around us reflecting off the snow and uh, then reflecting off the clouds. So yeah, that's not good for astronomy. But nonetheless, we live with it here in southern Ontario. The wolf moon tomorrow is the first full moon of the year. Wolf moon happens to be one of the traditional names, as I think you and I have spoken before. Every full moon of the year has a name, and that name varies from culture to culture. Wolf just happens to be one of the common ones, but uh, Snow Moon uh, is another one for this uh, this time of the year. And if you went to every Indigenous culture in Canada, they would have their own name for it. But it is a full moon tomorrow, and it rises uh, at sunrise. Sorry, at sunset here. So immediately after about 5.30, everybody should be keeping an eye on the eastern horizon. The mood illusion will be there. It's bright at this time of the year because, of course, you know, we're all you know, accustomed to you know, shorter days and longer nights, so to speak. So we're all going to be looking for that really bright ball there on the eastern horizon. We'll be up all night, of course, like all full moons. Uh, you know, the moon is a wonderful sight. You know, grab a pair of binoculars and have a look around the surface. Uh, you, know, you cannot hurt yourself looking at the moon, unlike the sun. Never look at the sun. But the moon is one of those objects where you know, telescopes, binoculars, just the unaided eye gives you a wonderful view. And you know, tomorrow night will be no exception. So a wolf moon is the first full moon of the new year? The January full moon, yes. Right. Correct. All right. Uh, anything else to report? It's been a busy day today. I mean, <laughs> what's in the future for space? Hey, what's coming next week? Well, not next week, but in the ne- well, there's the, the anniversary of the Columbia loss on February 1st. Right. But anyway, on more positive notes, uh, during the month of February, Mars gets visited by three spacecraft. Uh, Perseverance, the lander from NASA, goes down on February 18. So in the next three weeks, we're going to see Mars being gently assaulted by uh, first the Chinese orbiter, then the uh, UAE's orbiter, and then NASA's perseverance going down to Jezero Crater on February 18th. So ah, the excitement continues. All right. We'll be chatting next month then. Paul Delaney's with us, professor of astronomy, York University, talking everything about space tourism to wolf moons and unfortunate uh, tragedies that happen in the life of space exploration. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Um, you know, we've certainly talked a lot of late about how life was before COVID-19, how life was after or will be after COVID-19 and how some of the changes will stick and such. But, you know, truth uh, is, uh, as far as Stats Canada, there's been a lot of changes going on in the workplace uh, long before. Uh, COVID-19 hit and uh, perhaps that's just uh, or perhaps that might just speed up uh, what we already know. Uh, how have jobs changed over the last three decades based on the degree of routineness and cognitive manual nature of work? How fast can artificial intelligence grow? Are job trends in the last decade consistent with the rapid increase in artificial intelligence? StatsCan's new study, The Changing Nature of Work in Canada Amid Recent Advances in Automation Technology. And joining us to talk more about all of this, Mark Frenette is with us, research economist with Stats Canada, and is with us now. Mark, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Yes, I hope you're doing well as, as well. And we should also mention that this actually took place before the COVID-19 pandemic. Is that correct? That's absolutely true, but I think it's taking on a new life with COVID, and I think we'll, we'll get into that in a moment for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely, because I think a lot of this might be sped up as a result. That's what we've seen. But first, let's talk about your study, what your objective was here. So, you know, we've been hearing a whole lot about uh, artificial intelligence, and I'm sure a lot of your viewers, uh, our listeners, have uh, seen all these videos online that show robots doing all sorts of amazing things. I saw a video of, you know, these robots dancing and sort of interpretive dancing to uh, well-known pop songs. Uh, recently, but they also do other things such as, you know, diagnose depression, for example, uh, the type of things that, you know, you wouldn't think of as, as being, uh, you know, it, it, within the domain of robots. This is more u- human-like things. Um, so I think it's created a bit of fears among workers about, you know, what really is the role of, of humans in the future. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to take a look at uh, the types of jobs and, and, uh, and work that people do, right, the type of tasks that they do uh, in their jobs and how that has evolved uh, over the last little while, and in particular in the last decade, given the really significant uh, advances that we've seen in artificial intelligence. So that was really the goal of the study. And many will say that uh, robots have replaced people, that there are less people employed now as a result of automation. Is that accurate? Actually, it's not. I mean, that wasn't a a goal of this particular study. I do have a colleague uh, at StatCan who also looked at at that specific issue. Uh, And on average, no, he found that that was uh, robotics uh, within the manufacturing sector was associated with uh, an increase uh, in jobs and firms that invested more uh, in in robotics. What tends to happen is that uh, robots are traditionally more specialized in the routine manual type of work uh, that's out there. So if you think about uh, automotive uh, firms, uh, you know, assembly lines, we now see that there's a lot of robotics on those lines. And what that does is it tends to uh, free up uh, human workers to focus more on the cognitive non-routine tasks. So it creates some new opportunities. And you can think of other examples in other industries uh, as well. So, uh, And in other uh, countries, we've seen studies on this. Traditionally, uh, robot and technology adoption is, is not associated with any significant declines in total employment. But what it has been uh, associated with is a change in the type of work that humans do. And that's really the goal uh, of this study. Let's talk about that change in, in how things have evolved. Um, both my parents, uh, factory workers, uh, my father ran a printing press. My mother was actually on a line in a cosmetics factory. So I can very much relate to what you were saying because it was very much uh, repetitive and, uh, and, and the same thing over and over again and would actually develop injuries as a result of that, arm issues and such. So let's talk about how that has evolved and, and how it's, you know, we used to joke about, uh, you know, uh, working on a line and, you know, my job was to put the, the bolt on the Chevy sort of thing. That's not the way it is anymore. Uh, largely not. No, there's more supervision of robots going on, if anything. Uh, but overall, I mean, we didn't look at those specifics of, of the industries per se, but overall in the Canadian economy, we have seen this gradual shift away from the routine manual type of, of work. Uh, we started back in 1987. That's as far back as we can go with the data we had. And back then, 30% of workers were employed in those types of, of routine manual jobs. If you fast forward to 2018, that went down to 22%. That's a pretty significant decline, 
but it's over a 31-year period. Many are also, uh, you know, talk about various policies and such and uh, manufacturing jobs, specifically moving out of areas into cheaper climates and such. Um, but but really, is it about moving those jobs to uh, uh, cheaper economies or is it artificial intelligence? Is it robotics that have have removed it's those probably jobs? probably a combination of both. We actually uh, did a separate analysis uh, that tried to capture those sort of offshoring effects. Uh, so in the end, yes, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. It's probably a combination of both. Um, I, what I did want to add, though, is despite the fact that we're seeing this decline in routine manual work, at the same time, we're seeing more workers move towards the non-routine cognitive jobs. These are jobs in the managerial, professional, and technical occupations. And at the same time, that same period, 1987 to 2018, we saw the proportion of workers in those routine, or sorry, non-routine cognitive jobs increase from 24 to 31 percent. So it's really a shifting of the type of work that that Canadians do. Um, But again, this is over a three-decade-long period, and what we've observed, and this is the important point here, Scott is that this was a very gradual shift. I would describe it as a Mm. slow march towards non-routine cognitive work. We didn't see a big sudden jump in the 2010s. And that's important because in the 2010s is when we've really seen these these incredible uh, advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning. We're hearing all these buzzwords. Um, You know, a lot of these developments... uh, are by and large in the laboratory, and they're, they're incredible, uh, but they're only starting to get implemented in the workplace, and there's a lot of barriers out there to implement them. The costs, in particular, are, are at times fairly high. So for certain firms, especially smaller ones, uh, it's not clear that uh, they have a, 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 an immediate pathway uh, to invest in that technology. So really, so far, we're seeing, we're seeing that trend happen. We're seeing that shift in the type of work that Canadians are doing, but it's a slow, gradual march, and we haven't yet seen, uh, up until 2018, we haven't yet seen uh, a big jump away from routine manual to cognitive, uh, non-routine type of work. But it'll, be fa- it'll be fascinating to see where this goes post-COVID-19 and, and, and post-2020. Um, let me ask you this. So this is really an evolution of the workforce. This is an advancing of the workforce rather than job loss. Is that accurate? That, that's a, a good way to describe it, actually. Um, and it does raise some issues, right, because in order to, to land in those you know, professional kind of jobs, uh, by and large, you typically need uh, to have you know post secondary education in in your uh, on on your CV, uh, so it does raise some questions about um, you know the the optimal way to think about uh, where young people want to invest the, in their human capital, right? Do, do they want to leave high school uh, and work on those assembly line jobs, which might you know are still available and are still very good jobs, and I certainly wouldn't discourage anyone from from pursuing that. Uh, but this study really shows, you know, the trends that we've seen so far, and that information might be useful to them, uh, as well as perhaps the policymakers to think about uh, optimal strategy uh, in the future. So this is good news rather than bad, would you say? I mean, at the end, this is progress. 
Well, it's, uh, you know, we know that uh, professional-type jobs are well-paying. Uh, they're certainly not the type of jobs where you would expect to have a lot of arm injuries, uh, unfortunately, like your mother had uh, on the assembly lines. So, I mean, in some sense, in some sense, yes. Uh, but this is the reality. This is, this is where it has been heading. And I think an important point here is to think about where it's going to head following COVID. And that's really a topic that I think we should address here because, you know, before COVID, as I was saying, the costs were particularly high, especially for small firms. But now, given the the pandemic and the lockdown and, you know, the impact that that's having on firms, there could be some added incentive uh, that the pandemic has brought on to actually invest in, in that technology because robots and computer algorithms really are not susceptible to, to human viruses. They're susceptible to other kinds of viruses, such, you know, the digital uh, viruses, but not human viruses. Uh, so that could be one strategy to make your firm more resilient in light of future uh, pandemics and lockdowns. So it'll be extremely interesting to me as, as a researcher, and I think policy analysts as well will want to track this, to see what's going to happen uh, after COVID uh, in light of, uh, you know, in, in light of, uh, uh, of what we've seen in the past? Will we see an acceleration uh, more so towards uh, those types of uh, professional occupations, given the, you know, potential for increased investments in robotics? We certainly know uh, on an individual basis how we've all coped with COVID-19, how many have had to pivot and and start working from home, uh, that sort of thing, had to re- uh, rely on technology, which, if you, which, as you were saying, I mean, it, it's been here for a long time, but we haven't been forced to use it or it's not economical to use it or th- there's still so many that are used to the old model they can't envision uh, being thrust into anything like this unless, of course, it, you know, it would take a a world event like a global pandemic uh, to do this. So uh, obviously, post-COVID-19, a lot of these uh, situations that uh, that we found ourselves in are going to stick. I mean, you know, a- another great example is uh, kids learning online. We talked about it for a long time. It was debated as policy. And then all of a sudden, blammo, we didn't have a choice. We had to do it. And people were forced to make these uh, decisions. How much of this is going to stick post-COVID-19? Those are all interesting questions. I mean, I could speak from from my own experience. Uh, Working uh, at home uh, was a new thing for me once the the pandemic hit. Uh, Where I work at Statistics Canada, we had been thinking about these things, not the pandemic, obviously, but the potential for working uh, from home uh, as an effective strategy in certain cases. And uh, we we were largely ready for this. Um, You know, 20 years ago, of course, would have been a different issue because of technological constraints. But we, we were well on our way to doing this anyways. We just had to accelerate it, uh, given the, uh, the pandemic. And I would say it's been a great success by and large. There's always the challenges that you face that are mm-hmm. individual to each uh, household. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I could just speak for myself and say that my productivity, if anything, has increased. I realize that that's not the case for everyone. Uh, and, uh, you know, my wife is a teacher, and, you know, there are certainly some challenges there in terms of uh, yeah. teaching a, a classroom of young children remotely. Uh, so I'll leave it at that, but uh, I think it's an individual thing, and it will just depend on individual circumstances, and different sectors might have different solutions, and whether or not it will stick will just depend on, you know, whether or not it makes sense for their sector. Many are saying we'll end up with some sort of hybrid version of all of this. 
Yeah, I mean, again, from my own perspective, I could certainly see myself continuing to work online. Uh, you know, it, it could certainly, uh, you know, uh, facilitate things for me uh, in most instances. But at the same time, I don't want to be, you know, uh, shut out from, you know, being up close with my, yeah. my colleagues at work. So a hybrid model uh, is certainly, uh, you know, potentially in the cards for me. But again, it's, it's an individual choice, right? You talked about this study going from, what, 1987 to 2018 and how this was all a very long, slow, gradual shift. It'll be fascinating to see what happens post-COVID-19. Are we going to look back at this period in time as something like an industrial revolution or or a technological revolution when, when the Internet first hit? I mean, this has literally made an impact to everyone all over the world. How will we view this, do you think, uh, a few years from now? Well, that's, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but I think it, you know, you're not exaggerating when you say potentially we'll be looking at this as a sort of industrial revolution, because in a sense, we have revolutionized the way that we work uh, overnight. So, I, you know, I, absolutely, I don't think that's an unreasonable way to describe it. But to me, the most, the more important questions are, is how is it going to change things post-COVID? And, uh, whether or not we're going to be able to track that. And I certainly uh, plan on doing so as a researcher, so those are the types of questions that I, I certainly have in mind as I move forward in my, uh, in my work. You know, you even think of consumption and just how much consumption has gone down since we've all been locked in. You know, many have talked about the effects on climate and such and, and what policy is needed. And then all of a sudden, blammo, we find ourselves in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, it's technology that's allowed us to stay at home, uh, not restrictions, not taxation, and end up in a reduce, a reduction in consumption. So this is going to change a lot of discussions, isn't it? I think it will. Uh, you know, there's nothing about this study that actually puts me in a position to really comment any further on that, but I think you're right. I, I think there will be, uh, you know, in all dimensions of life, uh, COVID has changed the world and it changed the way we think about how we do things. Uh, you know, there's always the old uh, saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, so, you know, in my own uh, work environment, this did not kill us. This, uh, in fact, I think it made us stronger. Uh, I feel very, very confident in saying that. So I think we're going to move ahead uh, and, and do uh, even better things in the future. And I think, I think many, many firms and, and uh, organizations could probably say the same. Uh, others, of course, are, are suffering, and I fully understand that. Uh, you know, but there's perhaps other solutions that I, I can't really help with that you know, others might be in a better position to comment on. But again, it, it all comes down to the industry and the sector. We talk about the K-shaped uh, economic recovery. Mm. This is where you have some that, uh, you know, if anything, get stronger uh, from the, the pandemic, whereas others, you know, are obviously, are obviously hurting a lot. So those are all important questions. Uh, let's let's uh, see what happens, but we're going to keep tracking this, uh, you know, at StatCan across multiple dimensions. We're here to inform, and that's that's really our main objective. So we're going to keep doing that. Uh, so we hope that this is useful, and and we'll keep uh, we'll keep informing Canadians as we move along. Who knows? We could be on the verge of the next great generation uh, coming out of this. Uh, Mark Fernand has been with us, research economist with Statistics Canada, talking about uh, the changing nature of work in Canada amid recent advances in automation technology. Mark, thanks for the time and insight. Fascinating stuff. Be well. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. Be well as all. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.